Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production systems. Thanks everybody for being with us today, live with Chris and Marcelo, but without Chris this time. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And we have two guests joining us today to talk about cool season forages and, and the planting season. First, we have David Zierden, our state climatologist. And we also have Dr. Ann Blonde from the North Florida Research and Education Center as our professor in forage breeding in genetics and actually someone that developed most of our cool season varieties that come from Florida. David, Ann, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, always like to talk weather and climate. Let's start with a little bit of a weather update from David and we're, what we're seeing for the planting season for winter forages. Yeah, uh, we're in an interesting time right now. Uh, of course, the big weather story is Hurricane Ian and how it did impact and continues to impact our state. It's kind of a tale of two parts of the state from Gainesville southward, uh, very heavy rainfall, direct impacts, uh, flooding rainfall in areas like Kissimmee, uh, Volusia County, uh, Southwest Florida, 15 to 20 inches or more, just uh, really playing a lot of havoc with all kinds of agricultural production across uh, the peninsula of Florida. But the other side of uh, Hurricane Ian's landfall is from the Suwannee River westward, the Florida Panhandle, uh, where they missed all of the rainfall. Uh, there was actually a, a, a kind of unique uh, occurrence there uh, from Tampa up through the Florida Big Bend, Apalachicola Bay, Oklockney Bay. Uh, actually saw what we call a reverse storm surge with the strong northerly and offshore winds on the backside of Hurricane Ian. Uh, tides were actually three to four feet below normal for these areas, and that extended all the way to Mobile Bay. So, so kind of the opposite effect of the damaging storm surge in Fort Myers that we've all seen videos with. Uh, but more important to this topic today is that once you're on the backside of one of these strong or major hurricanes, it often pulls down uh, cooler, drier air, kind of amplifies high pressure in the wake of a hurricane as it exits the area. Uh, we saw this following uh, Hurricane Matthew in 2016, which led to kind of a flash drought situation across the Southeast where we had up to 45 days in a row without measurable rainfall over much of the states of Georgia, Alabama, and North Florida. Uh, we saw a similar type situation with Hurricane Dorian and Hurricane Umberto in 2019, uh, where again, it led to uh, the development of flash drought during this critical planting time for winter forage in, in the fall and in October. Uh, so we're kind of seeing that again. Uh, in the Florida Panhandle and Southeast Alabama, Southwest Georgia, 
dry conditions are developing very quickly. And like I say, the wake effect of Hurricane uh, Ian is part of that puzzle. This year, it's going to be even drier than normal, and we're going to see some really rapid drying of the soils and tough conditions for planting of winter forages if, in uh, rain-fed conditions. In the Pacific Ocean, we are in the La Nina phase once again, which is kind of the opposite of El Nino, where El Nino is better known. It's warmer than normal ocean temperatures in the tropical Pacific, usually brings us a wet and stormy winter and fall season here across the northern Gulf Coast in the state of Florida, where La Nina is the opposite phase, where it's actually colder than normal ocean temperatures in the Pacific Ocean. And that usually leads to a warmer and drier than normal conditions in the fall, winter, and even into the spring. Uh, this is the third consecutive year now that we've been in La Nina conditions. And we've managed to dodge the bullet the previous, previous two years. Uh, in 2020, uh, the winter rainfall patterns, especially up into central Alabama, central Georgia, were much wetter than normal much the opposite of what we would expect during La Nina conditions. Uh, 2021 was more of a mixed bag, but again, we, tend, we avoided the development of widespread or substantial drought across the area, which usually goes hand in hand with La Nina conditions. Now that we're in a third consecutive year and with the month of October and the near and midterm forecasts looking like they are, we might not be so lucky this year, and uh, we could go with what normally happens during La Nina, and that's a warmer, drier than normal winter, and the possible development and spread of drought across the area. So it's something to be very concerned about, especially with the dry conditions we're expecting, we're experiencing right now. And this La Nina is expected to last through the winter months uh, into January, and then likely it'll start to break apart as we get into the late winter and spring and hopefully lose its influence by those, uh, by those months. David, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking here at the, um, at the seasonal forecast for both precipitation and temperature. And, and it really looks like we're going to be drier than normal and hotter than normal out of the way, probably into March and April. But as you said, it seems to be clearing a little bit in the, March, April, May trimester getting getting closer to normal, which doesn't mean rainy either. Right. No. Thanks for pointing that out. Uh, that's very indicative that there, the Climate Prediction Center is basing a lot of this forecast on the the idea of a continued La Nina conditions in the Pacific Ocean, and that warmer and drier than normal is always a good bet when we are in these La Nina conditions and. Uh, as you pointed out, once we get into March, April, May, we start to lose that signal, but that's mostly because the Pacific Ocean doesn't have nearly as much uh, control on our climate as we get into the late spring and summer as it does in the cold weather months. So uh, that's kind of what we're seeing there, but you're right. And especially you mentioned the temperature forecast uh, La Nina favors warmer than normal conditions across the whole southern tier of the United States, but we're also looking at an overall trend of warming across the northern hemisphere due to climate change. So uh, when you add on climate change with La Nina conditions, 
warmer than normal uh, winter conditions are, are a pretty good bet. So my concern is winter forage planting right now. I've told everybody to look for cooler weather uh, and of course a rainfall pattern that is not just one rain event, but possibly two, because I'm concerned about stand failure. But now you have me really concerned, uh, although I already suspected this. So um, when you have warming conditions, we're, we're going to be more at risk for diseases. So again, you know, uh, Marcelo and, and anyone who is uh, helping folks with winter planning, uh, newer varieties have better disease resistance. I'm mostly concerned about fungi being uh, uh, an issue. Uh, warm, warm weather oftentimes promotes that. Also, what you said about going into the spring of the year, so we have a number of folks uh, planning on putting in new pastures. So waiting until we see what the weather is going to be like in March, March, eight, February, March is a lot of the um, window that we recommend for planting bahia grass. But my concern is fall planting and then spring planting of perennial grasses, considering what you just reported to us. Yeah, it, it's it's hard for me to kind of make recommendations, but certainly I think uh, dryness this fall, and certainly we're getting into the planting season, is is a pretty good bet, and and so adjust accordingly. Uh, as we get into the spring of the year, this February, March uh, time frame, when uh, other pastures are being uh, being planted, like bahia, that's more of a wait and see. Because, uh, like I say, the two previous years we've had La Nina conditions in the Pacific Ocean, but the widespread drought or dryness never really developed. So, uh, I wouldn't cancel those plans at this early stage, but certainly just watch and wait and look for favorable weather conditions. Actually, yeah. this year was very favorable for planting. Uh, it was very hard for folks who had to bale any kind of hay in the spring or in summer months like perennial peanut. But uh, as far as getting pasture establishment in a La Nina supposed year, we actually had very good conditions for that. And a lot of people took advantage of it. But now you got me nervous going from a a dry fall into a dry potential spring. And a lot of us did in the Florida Panhandle did not put up good quality hay at all this year for the winter uh, months for livestock. So that's another concern. I was hoping early planning of cool season forages would offset the quality issues and conserve forage. Everything seems to favor dryness right now. One strategy that I sometimes I like using is try to get the land prepped earlier or at least herbicide early and in late September, early October, get some of those showers in to replenish those soil reserves, which are not great here in Florida because it's so sandy and try to get to get yeah. planting planting afterwards. Another another strategy that I think is going to be important for producers at this point, which, which is late to 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 start doing it, but those that have stockpiled forage might be better off in using that stockpiled forage during the October, November, in, the, in December, and delaying, probably delaying that planting of the cool season forages yes. later into, into November, where when the chances of um, when the chances of rain are, are getting a little better, the, the, the cold fronts are getting stronger, right, David? 
Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, once we get into November and December, the, the fronts are a little more regular, a little more vigorous, and we can count on a little better rainfall, even though we are in La Nina conditions. Okay, and uh, I know you asked me in terms of uh, where we're talking about, and most of the cool season are going to be planted, cool season forages are going to be planted in the central north and panhandle, but just a little comment on, on southern Florida, uh, seasonal uh, precipitation outlook here, it still looks the same below average for, for southern Florida as well. Yeah. So we're probably not looking into a good, good scenario for cool season forages in south Florida this year. Okay, so uh, the other thing that we that I want to talk today and and bringing bring your experience here is uh, about the recommendations. So we recently updated the new the EDIS or new Ask IFAS 2022 cool season forage recommendations. What what is new for the producers and what has changed from past years? So not not a whole lot new, except for um, some of the wheat have um, now surfaced as being good as far as their forage production. So that's important because that's an insurable crop. And now I'm starting to get worried. Maybe it is a good idea that you should plant something that's insurable because I'm not sure when we're going to be able to get the forages in the ground. But um, the good news is seed costs haven't gone up. So the seed prices has remained fairly uh, the same. I do want to caution everybody, there is some carryover seed on the market. Be uh, very careful looking to see when the seed was actually um, harvested and what the germ is. So here's a report. Uh, there has been some triticale on the market that has uh, germination in the 70% range, somewhere in there. And uh, it, it has to be 80% for it to be uh, legally sold, but there are allowances that are made on the uh, labeling sometimes when the germination is a little bit lower. And what they do is they actually germinate uh, in the seed testing labs a little bit more refined and they can bump up the percent germination a little bit and make it saleable. But oftentimes what that means to me is it may have low vigor. So just to be aware, to check when that seed was actually harvested, it should be on the label. It should have been retested if it's carryover seed from the year before. Sometimes they'll give you a little bit of a price break on it because they're trying to move out the older seed. New seed is not all on the market yet, um, but uh, there, that carryover seed is what they're going to be marketing first. So buyer beware. It's why we read the labels. And so make sure that the germination is at least 80%. And in the case of it being 80 or below, I would recommend that we uh, have folks consider if they buy that seed to increase the seeding rate, because we don't base anything on pure live seed where we base everything on pounds per acre. And so, uh, you know, if you're 10% down or 20% down on germination, you might want to make those adjustments. And even if the seed's cheaper, uh, it'll come out probably the same cost. Good news, there should be plenty of cereal rye on the market, plenty of oat varieties on the market, uh, triticale, uh, plenty of 342 triticale, I think 1143 may be a little bit more on the limited side, 
There's a number of new wheat varieties. They are available. If, um, any carryover seed on legume, um, the rhizobium is dead. So it will all need to be re-inoculated, even if the germination meets the uh, saleable level. Uh, a lot of times um, I would be concerned if it's pre-coated, that the seed may not have the same vigor or viability. But for sure, if it is coated with the rhizobium, the rhizobium is no longer active and it would need to be re-inoculated. Well, my recommendation is always inoculate regardless. My preference is, is always to buy raw seeds or not coated seeds because you're not, not buying inert material and inoculate those seeds yourself right before planting. It's pretty cheap to do that. It's going to add very little cost, a little, a little more labor, but very little cost. And it's a great assurance that you're having the rhizobias there close to the seeds when they germinate. And again, check the label on that. Since one year, I found inoculant that was three years old sitting on a shelf in a feed and feed store for sale for that year for planting. So the inoculant was out of date in a warm feed store, and I'm sure it wasn't viable. That's true. Keeping, keeping the inoculant out of direct sunlight and in a cool environment is essential and pre-inoculate inoculating it right before planting, not not days before planting. And given the given what David brought to us in terms of a forecast for the the weather, knowing that's going that the likelihood of being dry is high, what are the choices we're going to do to make in terms of planting time in for in species or varieties species in or varieties to plant? Okay. So this is not a scenario that we haven't dealt with before. Uh, when we plant forages, we recommend October 15th to November 15th. But when we plant the same forages for grain, it's November 15th to December 15th. So you have really a couple of months period where you can still get sizable amount of growth on a lot of these different cool season forages but all of them across the board are day length sensitive. And as you move towards the 22nd of December, it's short days. So what do we wanna do? We would wanna look at uh, the varieties that are uh, fairly early. The later that we plant, we would want to have something that jumps out of the ground and has a very short growing season. An example would be Florida 401 rye. Uh, Tricale 342 triticale or 1143 triticale and legend oak. Those, those, that group are the earliest of all the uh, small grains and that would fit for very late planting. Marcel and I try in the variety recommendations to list if we can, which varieties are early season producers. And that's what I would say. The later you plant, plant your early season producers. And if we're gonna have a dry fall, like uh, David's suggesting, I would caution very uh, carefully about planting ryegrass because that's where you'll get the most chance of stand failures. Ryegrass needs moisture to germinate and get going. So uh, I wouldn't plant ryegrass until we, we get consistent rain. What I would be looking in terms of planting this year would be something, uh, I think the, the oat and the rye are going to be good options in terms of resistance, because especially rye, because it, it is more drought tolerant in, in early, as you mentioned. 
But I think that ryegrass may have a place later in the season, as always, especially because it will hopefully will get a little more rain towards the mid in, in, in later later part of the winter, which would be an assurance to have forage growing growing later. So I'll still keep I, I think I would still keep that ryegrass. And it probably, even though the germination, the 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 get-go might be a little slower. It will be covered by the oats, and then we have it later on. Do you agree with that? So you could go ahead and just do the blend, which I'm very much in favor of, because like you said, it makes gives you a longer season forage production. And if David's right and we start to get some spring rains, then that'll certainly um, you know help the ryegrass. But the good thing about ryegrass is in the event that you do use ryegrass in a blend, you can, uh, if, if you lost that component, you can always go back and, and sling it out with a distributor. Uh, you know, the good thing is it could go on top of the ground rather than necessarily drill because it's such a tiny seed. So you could do a rescue sometime in December and just, uh, you know, distribute ryegrass over the, um, the fields. That, that's a good situation. And don't forget, we have a lot of people who have irrigation. They shouldn't be afraid of anything. They should go and just wait for cool temperatures and plant. So the dairies should be in good shape. Most of them are under irrigation systems. And uh, if you're using ryegrass in the mix and it's dry and you lose that component, consider maybe adding some more ryegrass at a later date. So good, I agree with that, Marcel. Don't not include it, but you may lose it if it's very dry in your plant now. So Kelly Grazer 3, that one was a line that we developed. It took us 10 years working with University of Georgia. That line has topped the yield trial for, for years uh, as the top rye. And it is a broad season rye. It has an early, medium, and late component. And so it's actually Florida 104 rye. I think sometimes Marcel and I put that in parentheses, but it became Kelly Grazer 3. And I just looked at the yield data from this last year, multi-location, and it's still right up to the top. Excellent, excellent cereal rye. So I would say that would be right up there where I would recommend that as a rye of choice. And if you do grow 401, it would be either as a cover crop, a windbreak, or where you would mix it with something like ryegrass so that you have some extended forage production because it's so ultra early. I'm curious about what is new that we have released this year that is in the market already. Okay, what's new? So probably the newest is the 720 oat that's actually out there commercially available. So it's there's also some, you know, new uh, varieties like Juggernaut. I haven't seen that really out there. Uh, there's a couple of new ryegrasses. So there's really not a lot of newbies on the market. There's a new rye called Swift. It did look good in the trials. It's from Noble Foudation. Um, the 1143 Triticale is probably one of the newer ones that are out there. And we have a new Triticale, but it'll be another, like, I said, year or two before you see it commercially, even though it's released. From from the list we have here, I think uh, there is two, three new old varieties that came out this year that were added to the list this year. So Juggernaut, actually, Ju Juggernaut is a new one uh, from Dr. Babar's program. There is a new ram 
that is going to, from what I understand, is going to replace LA 99016? I would be looking out for the new um, uh, line that replaces the RAM, and that's from Steve Harrison and Ali Bebar. But again, I'm not seeing the seat on the market. So that's, we had, even though we have it on the recommendation list, it's still not showing up in the marketplace. Thanks everybody for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking to you, David, Ann. Thanks for sharing with us. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas.ufl.edu. Or find us on our social media, uf.forages on Instagram, uf.forage team on Facebook, or UF IFAS Forages on YouTube.